Well, hello, Kindred. Uh, my name is Lindsay. I am excited to welcome you uh, to church this evening. I am against candy corn, for the record. I think it's disgusting. I think it's weird. I don't like it at all. Um, <laughs> really quick, before we jump into tonight, um, I want to just honor and thank um, Jen Ralph. She has led worship for us through the month of October as our team. Yes. As our team has been um, just in a season of transition, we are so grateful for her. She has done a beautiful job. We love her, and um, we just wanted to make sure that we got to say thank you publicly to her. So, uh, welcome back. We are in our study of Isaiah, and we are about uh, at the halfway mark. And so what I want to do to begin is sort of just get us up uh, to speed what we have seen so far, because we have covered quite a bit of ground. So, chapters 1 through 39, they make up this first section of Isaiah. And we have seen how Isaiah couples these two themes together, both judgment and hope. Isaiah begins by holding Israel's leaders to account. He accuses them of rebelling against God and pointing out the way that they have abandoned their identity as people who reflect the very character of God and how in their insecurity and in their hunger for power and for wealth, they have sort of now hitched their wagon to more violent and abusive regimes. So Isaiah predicts that Assyria and Babylon would destroy Israel and this kingdom that these leaders of Jerusalem and Judah had built for themselves. But in this crumbling, there is still hope, this hope that God would leave behind a remnant, what Isaiah calls a holy seed, and that this seed would bring new life from the ashes. This holy seed we come to know is the bloodline of King David a bloodline that would eventually bring us Jesus. And Jesus would then establish a whole new kingdom, a new Jerusalem, free of violence and oppression and cruelty. But this vision of peace, it was not just for the people of Israel, but this kingdom would be for every nation. All the people of the world would find safety and rest and peace under this new king. And so leading up to chapter 39... Jerusalem makes all these alliances with Egypt and then with Babylon, looking to the powers of the world, looking to these empires of strength and wealth to give them stability. And eventually they are betrayed. Isaiah ends this section in chapter 39 with this prediction that Jerusalem would fall to Babylon. And 100 years after he says it, it comes true. If we go to 2 Kings chapter 25, we find this. On the seventh day of the fifth month in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, commander of the imperial guard as official of the king, an official of the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace and all the houses of Jerusalem, every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army under the commander of the imperial guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And so Judah went into captivity away from her land, and this marks the beginning of exile. Well, the next section where Isaiah is now going to explore is this idea of hope, this idea of hope on the other side of exile. See, Israel was meant to be this hope. 
And if we reach back into Genesis, we're reminded of a few things about God's creation project. One, that God chose to carry out his plans for the earth through human beings. And two, the mission has always been to expand. We see this in the first instructions given to humanity. Adam and Eve are told be fruitful and multiply, expand and fill the earth. And then when that gets messed up, God chooses another family, a man named Abraham, to continue his project. And the promise is that Abraham's family, his descendants, will come to bless the whole earth, not just those belonging to his bloodline. And then we get this very long history of Israel, the people of Abraham, messing this up over and over. And because ancient Israel kept falling short of this calling, Isaiah introduces us to a figure called God's servant. God's servant. We're first introduced to this figure in chapter 42. And here's what it reads. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. And in his teaching, the islands will put their hope. So I want to draw out of these verses the way this servant, who looking forward we know to be Jesus, is different than any other conqueror or king that Israel has ever known and that we have ever known. How Jesus stands in contrast to the way that other conquerors trample over people, stepping on others to further their own agenda, exploiting the weaknesses of others to get ahead. But when Jesus arrives in history, Isaiah writes in verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break. I love this imagery about a bruise. Because a bruise means that there's been harm, that there's been pain, that something has been damaged, but the body has begun the work of healing, right? As this bruise changes from black to purple to blue to then that weird greenish-yellow color, right? Jesus will not treat what has been bruised with harshness or brashness or cruelty. And so if you feel like life or religion or church has knocked you around and it has left you a bit black and blue, that some damage has been done, and you wear the evidence of that carelessness or that abuse on you, if it has left parts of you fragile and tender, Jesus will treat you gently. He will not burden a reed, doing its best to remain standing with more weight. He will not break and crush and trample over what is hanging on by a thread. Then Isaiah writes, he will not snuff out a smoldering wick. I imagine that some of us, feel like our faith or our belief or maybe our complicated relationship with church is sort of like that smoldering wick, that it remains, but all that's left is this faint orange glow. There's no flame, there's no fire, barely intact. 
Jesus sees these delicate and frail and barely hanging on by a thread pieces of our hearts and our lives and our faith even. And he doesn't squash them or try to extinguish them, but he actually shields us. He shields us as he gently rekindles that flame with patience and tenderness and care until it is ready to burn brightly again. Isaiah then writes, This servant will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. This points forward to the countless moments throughout the biographies of Jesus where he heals people quietly, where he does the miraculous but on the down low where he gives suffering and desperate people a chance at life, and then he tells them not to say anything, not to make a spectacle. Jesus never uses the story of someone's transformation to build himself up, to say, look what I did, look at my success, look at all of my power. And then, here in those four verses, right, that describe this figure Isaiah calls God's servant, we see the word justice repeated three times in four verses. Anytime there is this kind of repetition in scripture, it is signaling something to us that this is something to pay attention to. Isaiah writes, he will bring justice to the nations. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He establishes justice on earth. Though this word translated here for justice it carries more meaning than we might realize. We hear the word justice, and our modern imagination is shaped by the court system. Concepts like guilty and innocent, right and wrong. We imagine that justice is about legal correctness or a ruling being pronounced. But the biblical idea of justice is about more. It's about restoring God's design for his people. It's connected to things like dignity and worth and value and our identity as people who bear God's image. See, this same word, translated for justice here in Isaiah, is used back in the book of Exodus for the plan of the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was this place where the very presence of God would live. It's where he would dwell, where he would be among his people. And God gives all of these exhaustive details about how it is to be constructed. Um, We linked in the program for you a message from Exodus talking all about the tabernacle, if you're interested. Okay, but these instructions, they were like a blueprint. A blueprint of heaven that Moses was then supposed to recreate here on earth. Well, this tells us. Right, the same word being used in both instances, that justice is about God's blueprint for creation, for humanity, for his people. Justice is about his design and intention for human flourishing. So we can think about justice this way. It is to give someone their due value and honor and dignity as an image bearer of God. And so working from that definition, we then see the way that Jesus brings this blueprint for human life from heaven with him to earth. The way he models it, the way he embodies it, that he is reordering everything to give us what God intended us to have. This means that injustice, 
is more than just a corrupt political system or social dysfunction, but injustice is to deny God, is to deny the due dignity of those made in the image of God. It is to rob people of the full life they were intended to have. This is what poverty and hunger and neglect and discrimination and misogyny and racism do. They strip God's people of our due dignity and worth and value. And so we see here in Isaiah that Jesus, God's servant, is going to bring justice with him. It is one of his defining characteristics that he is going to reorder things and reconstruct and remake God's blueprint for life here on earth. And he's not going to do this by force or by dominance or by bullying people into a certain way of life, but it's going to come by suffering, by suffering. Isaiah goes on. Now, this is God speaking to his servant. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant for the people and the light for the Gentiles. To open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. So God has made Jesus a covenant for us. We revisit this word a lot, but covenant just means a contract or an agreement or a promise. And the story of ancient Israel and really the story of our own lives is that we can't keep our end of the agreement, that we give in, that we give our allegiance and our love and our devotion to things other than God, that we betray God in our search for security or safety, or comfort outside of him, that we choose our own way over his time and time again. And so God sends Jesus to be our end of the agreement, securing our way back to God. The cross is God revealing and saying to us, you may break your promise, and you may wander away from me, and you may love people and things more than you love me, but I will not pull away from you. I will not be the one to withdraw, but I will actually take it upon myself to be what you can't so that we can be together. I will make Jesus your end of the agreement. And then God declares that this suffering servant, that he'll be a light, a light to the Gentiles. And we read some of what I think are the most gorgeous verses describing the way this light opens eyes that are blind, frees captives from prison, and releases those who are in darkness. Now, I believe that these verses are intended to be taken both literally and figuratively. I believe that they speak to both the material and spiritual condition of our lives, that Jesus wants to transform and heal. And so we shouldn't neglect the physical implications but I want to lean into the figurative for just a moment here. Right? Isaiah writes that it will open eyes of the blind, taking what we could not physically see. Right? The very nature of God, his heart and the way he feels, God's mind, the way he thinks, and he made God visible. Jesus 
opens our eyes to God, to the mysterious and the divine and the untouchable, helping us see who God is and what he is like. Jesus is the very face of God. And he gives us new vision to see ourselves and others and our world more clearly, how before him, maybe we were blind to our own need for him, blind to some of our own brokenness and our own flaws. How before him, we were blind to a life that could be any different, to a future that didn't look just like our present or our past, but Jesus, by his death and resurrection, reveals to us a new way of seeing that we would see endings and death and decay as opportunities where new life begins. Isaiah writes that he sets the captives free. I would imagine that we all feel trapped in some way or another. Or maybe trapped in our own minds with thoughts of anxiety or depression. Some of us feel stuck or trapped in a certain role that was either maybe given to us by the family we grew up in or we just took it on at some point along the way. Feeling like, well, I am always in the middle. I'm in the go-between between my parents. Or I am the peacekeeper. I am the distraction that makes sure nobody loses it on each other. Or I am the responsible one. I always have it together. I have to make sure everybody else is okay. Some of us are held captive by addictions, patterns of sin that we loop over and over, struggling against. Some of us are held captive to ideas about ourselves and about others that hold us back and lead us to harm one another, right? Insecurities or what we believe we deserve or pride and arrogance that leads us to demean others and throw them away. And then Isaiah writes, he releases those who sit in dungeons, overwhelmed by darkness. If you feel overwhelmed by darkness, that loss or grief or longing or despair has brought you into a depth, into a pit, into a hole that is so deep it feels inescapable, that you have sunk so far you can no longer see the light. Jesus meets you there. His light and his grace and his resurrection, it illuminates a way through, a way forward. This is what light does. A few chapters later, Isaiah captures the way that this mission of Jesus, it is more all-encompassing and far-reaching than we often allow it to be. Believing that at some point that grace or that light, it must run out. That maybe we stand just on the other side of that line. Or that someone like that stands just on the other side of his grace. We put limits on Jesus, forgetting just what he came to do and who he came to reach. Isaiah writes in chapter 49, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. 
Here we see the way that Jesus is both for the people of Israel, for the tribes of Jacob, as Isaiah writes. Though it would be too small a thing to limit Jesus' sacrifice to just the people of Israel. His work does not end there, but he is for the world. He will be a light to the nations, to people like you and me who are far from God, who are blind to his grace, who are held captive by sin or destructive patterns, those who are waiting in darkness. Jesus is the light of the world and the hope of the world. And then this Jesus, this servant of God, he looks back at each of us who says we believe in him, who calls themselves a Christian and says, you My people, my followers, you are now the light of the world. We carry the very light of Jesus in us. We carry the very power, the transforming, healing, liberating power of Jesus in us. This light that opens the eyes of the blind, that sets captives free, that reaches down into the darkest, coldest, most desolate dungeons where people sit hopeless and alone and scared. That is what we carry in us. And so consider this metaphor with me as we think about being light. Okay, the Old Testament. So the part of the Bible before Jesus breaks into history. It reveals that ancient Israel, the community of God, was meant to be a lighthouse. That their way of life was meant to stand apart from the world and signal something different to people. And like a lighthouse, they were then meant to draw others in. To draw those in who were drowning and lost and in need of shelter. Though the New Testament the part of the Bible when Jesus arrives in time and history and on, describes something different. That in his death and resurrection, the spirit of Jesus does not just dwell in one place anymore, but he dwells in each of us. His spirit making each one of us light. And so the people of God are not so much a lighthouse that stays fixed in place and draws others in, but each of us carry this light with us like a flashlight, spreading out into the world from wherever it is that we are, illuminating these dark and dim places of the world. And so reflecting on these words of Isaiah, of this suffering servant of God, that would come to us as light, that would restore value and dignity and honor in his people who would open our eyes and set us free and release us from darkness and that in Jesus we also become that light the question I want to leave us with tonight is do we have that effect on others does our light have that effect when people encounter us Are they inspired to see something that they couldn't see before? Maybe that's a way of life, a way of peace in so much uncertainty, a way of hope in so much despair. Is your own transformation, does that allow people to see a future that they couldn't see for themselves? 
that Jesus really can take dead and buried things and bring them back to life? Are we allowing people to see something that they were blind to before? Are we freeing people from these limiting ideas and beliefs? Or are we shackling people with more shame and more demands for good behavior and more burdens, more trying and proving and striving? And when people encounter us, do they encounter the kind of light that relieves them of feeling like they were alone, totally alone, overwhelmed in darkness and that no one was coming. We have the ability to relieve people in dungeons of that despair. Jesus has called us to this, to participate in the work of building his kingdom, of bringing light to every corner of the world. This is who we are as people of light who belong to God and who belong to each other. Kindred, you are the light of the world. And so shine. Would you stand and would you pray with me? God, I thank you for who you are, that you are good and gentle and patient. And God, that you pursue us, that you come after us. God, that as we look back over history, we see the countless ways that we have rejected you or ignored you or rebelled against you, God, and you never gave up on your people, on your dream to be with us, to make us reflections of you. So God, I am thankful for your commitment to us, even when we fail. God, thank you for your son, Jesus, your servant, that you sent to restore us back to you. God, that you sent as light. I pray tonight that we would see the way we carry that light, the way we carry your power for healing and freedom and transformation within us. God, I pray that you make us people who open the eyes of the blind, who set captives free and who reach into the darkest and coldest and most faraway places because there are people waiting for rescue. Jesus, we love you and we need you and I pray this in your name.